Thank you, Larry. Good morning, everyone. Good to see everybody on this Palm Sunday. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 21. Being Palm Sunday, we'll just go ahead and read the account that that uh, comes from. Matthew 21, we're going to start in verse 1. Would you find your place? Let's all stand together as we receive the word of the Lord. It says, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought the donkey and the colt, and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise for yourself? And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much just for the opportunity for all of us to come together here, Lord, and and focus on you. And God, I realize that where we can come in here and we can sing songs, we can play music, Lord, I can get up here and speak some words, and we can do all that without you having anything to do with it at all. And God, we don't want that. Lord, what a waste of time it would be if you weren't uh, just powerfully involved in everything that we do and say here. And so, God, I'm asking you to come. You send your Holy Spirit, Lord, to speak through me, to open our eyes to see the things you want us to see, to change our hearts in the ways that you want them changed. Jesus, we just want an encounter with you in this place. In your name we pray, amen. Matthew's account of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is such a whirlwind. I mean, there is so much going on here in these 17 verses. He comes in on a donkey and the people are singing and shouting and throwing their coats and tree branches down in the road in front of him. And from there he goes right into the temple where he cleans house there, overturning the money uh, changers' tables and chairs and throwing them out. And then he heals the the blind and the lame and then he's gone. 
And it's like, whoa, what in the world just happened? The way Matthew wrote this, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and then he goes right back out and just leaves this wake of stuff behind him. I love how verse 10 describes it, although I think it is a bit of an understatement when it says, when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. Yeah, I bet it was stirred. Probably more than, more than just stirred. And I can just imagine someone coming into the city after Jesus had already left. And they come in and they see the people buzzing all around. They look down and they see all these coats and tree branches laying all over the ground. They walk by the temple and they see the people picking up the tables and and cleaning up all the mess that Jesus had, had made in there. And then they see all these people who are jumping and leaping about, excited, still amazed, and celebrating the fact that they could now walk and they could now see. And so this person just getting to town, wondering what's going on, and so they grab somebody walking by and say, hey, what in the world is going on here? What What happened? And there'd be just one simple, short answer that would say it all. Jesus was here. Jesus was here. That's what happened. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired Matthew to write it this way, just to illustrate the fact that when Jesus shows up, something happens. When Jesus enters a place, things change. When he arrives on the scene, it is no longer business as usual. It is no longer just maintaining the status quo. No, Jesus changes the whole environment when he is present. And I can't help but notice that it says all the city was stirred. It wasn't just the part of the city that Jesus was in. He had an effect on the entire city, the largest one in Israel. This whole account here is also a picture of salvation. I mean, when we first see Jesus for who he truly is, and we realize that he is the answer for our brokenness and our separation from God, praise and adoration rises up in us, which is represented by the people singing his praises when he first comes into the city. And then him going from there into the temple and throwing out the money changers is symbolic of the way his Holy Spirit comes into us and cleanses us from sin. And then right after that, he heals the blind and the lame the same way he not only removes our sin, but he heals our hurts and he opens our eyes to the truth. Jesus brought dramatic change to the city that day. But the difference between the change that he brought then... And the change that he brings to our lives is that the change in Jerusalem that day was temporary. But the change that he brings to us is permanent. I mean, those who were shouting Hosanna as he came riding in were more than likely some of the very same ones that were shouting crucify him just a few days later. At best, they were complicit in their silence as no one was coming to his defense during his trial. I seriously doubt that what Jesus did to the money changers caused them to repent and change their ways. In fact, the scripture says that they were pretty mad about it. And so it wouldn't take long for them to put everything right back, for them to go right back to their greedy business dealings there in the temple. 
And even the healing of the blind and the lame was temporary, if you think about it, because those people didn't end up living forever. I mean, eventually their whole bodies gave out and they died. Jesus knew that the change he brought that day wouldn't be lasting, but that was okay because that wasn't his primary mission. He didn't come primarily to change people's actions, to get as many people as he can to like him. He didn't primarily come to change the way that the temple operated or even to change people's physical well-being. His primary mission was focused on something much, much bigger. The change that he came to bring was to change the curse of sin, to reverse that curse. He came to change the, the broken and guilty status that we had with God, to change the status between God and man. He came to change the entire course of human history. And that kind of change couldn't happen simply by him just showing up. That change would only come by him dying on a cross. And his death made it possible for those who put their trust in him to be the recipients of all that change that he did come to bring. And when we do that, a permanent, a permanent change occurs in us. We are changed from guilty to forgiven, from slave to son, changed from shame to honored, from far off to brought near, and changed from death to life. If you're following along in your notes, here's the first point. At the moment of salvation, there is an immediate and permanent change that takes place in us. An immediate and a permanent change. And part of that change includes the fact that God no longer views us in light of our sin. He views us in light of His Son. That change also includes the incredible news that we are declared now forever by God, righteous, holy, and new. That's who we are before God now. And Scripture is clear that once that change occurs, there is absolutely nothing that can undo that. Nothing can undo it. Ephesians 1.13 says, In Him... You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. That identity, that change in you that, that Jesus brought about has been sealed. You know what that means? That your status and your identity before God does not fluctuate with how good you are. It doesn't fluctuate with your behavior. I mean, it's not that on the days that you are feeling especially spiritual and close to God and you're, you know, having all this victory over, over sin, that on that day you're, you're more holy, but on the days where you're falling and, and your flesh is, is weak and you're feeling a little more distant from God that you are less holy. No, that's not how it works at all. Your status before God is not dependent on your performance. Not at all. 
It's not dependent on what you do. It's completely dependent on what Jesus has done. And the reason for that is because the status that you now have before God is the same status that Jesus himself has before God. I mean, that stat- the status of Jesus was given to you and placed on you as a free gift of God's grace. I mean, it had to be that way because it is impossible for us to achieve or produce holiness on our own. I don't care how good you are, you are never going to be holy in your own strength by your behavior. That has to be a designation that is given to you and placed on you by God himself. And that is exactly what happens at the moment of salvation. But there's another kind of change that takes place in the life of a believer. And that is the ongoing change that happens over the course of our Christian life. The change that that takes place from the moment of salvation to the day that we are called home. And that's the change that I really want us to look at this morning. It's been nearly three months since I had my knee replacements. My old knees were removed and the new ones were put in. Whereas 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. (laughs) And ever since that happened, I mean, it has not been life as usual. I have not lived life the way I lived it before the surgery. I have not walked the way that I walked before the surgery because it is physically impossible for me to do so. And so what I am doing now is having to learn to live with these new knees, learning how to live with this permanent change that has taken place in my body. With my old knees out, there are now parts of me that are just not there anymore. There are nerves and tendons and ligaments and bones that are gone. And so the signals that my brain was receiving in the past, those signals aren't there anymore. And I've got some new signals that are going back and forth between my brain and my knees. Signals that I'm learning how to uh, listen to and respond to the way that I should. See, the first six to eight weeks of my physical therapy was primarily spent on breaking up scar tissue and and preventing new tissue from forming so that I could have that range of motion that I used to have before. I'm almost where I need to be there, and so you know what I'm working on now? Learning how to walk the right way. I never thought before this that I'd have to learn how to walk all over again. I mean, yeah, I can get from point A to B, but doing it the right way is what I'm having to work on because these signals have been changed. There is a change that has occurred in me. For 45 years, I had these certain signals that I was responding to. But like I said, they're not there anymore. And so I'm having to learn to do it the right way with the new that I have now. And I'm telling you, that is exactly what living the Christian life is. When you put your faith in Jesus for salvation, the old you is taken out and your new self is put in. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come in your life. And there are things about you that just aren't there anymore. There were signals that went back and forth between your mind and your dead spirit 
that aren't there anymore. You've got a new signals going on now between your mind and the Holy Spirit who now lives in you. And your life from now on is learning how to live in this new that you have. Learning how to live with this permanent change that has taken place inside of you. And because we live with the old for so long, we're not always going to get things right. We're going to make mistakes from time to time. The first six weeks after my surgery, I mean, you all saw how I was walking, very stiff-legged. Some of you were worried, going, man, I hope it gets better than that. That's troubling. (laughs) But I am better, and a couple weeks ago, I hit a turning point where my knees started bending more than they ever have. It's almost back to normal now. And, and there, after that turning point, man, I was just loving the fact that I wasn't walking like Frankenstein anymore. And so one morning, I walk into the rehab center, and my therapist looked at me, and he said, Bud, we've got to get you walking right again. And I thought I was walking right. But he pointed out that it looked like I was marching to some tune in my head. You see, I was so happy with being able to bend my knees again. I was just walking like this, just <laughs> overbending them everywhere I went. And apparently it looked pretty silly. And he walked me in front of the mirror, and I saw what he was talking about. And I'm like, please help me. <laughs> I, I, I'm not doing this right. And that's the same way we can get about the new that we experience in Christ at times, too. You know, you see this a lot in brand new Christians who are all excited at first or when we receive some new revelation from the Lord. And learning to live with these new needs at times has been awkward, painful, difficult. But the more I focus on doing it right and the more I pursue that full restoration, eventually this just walking the right way is just going to become natural. I'm going to get used to these new signals and these new feelings that I have, and I won't even have to think about it anymore. And the same is true with our new life in Christ. We're all going to have our ups and downs and our awkward moments and our falls and our struggles, but the more we focus on Jesus and getting to know Him, the more natural this new life is just going to be, where you don't even have to think about it anymore. I mean, it just a natural outflow of your life. You know, I preach a lot on the grace of God. You've heard me often say things like, it's not about what you do, it's about what Jesus did, and, and Christian life is not about following rules and things like that. And I've had people ask me that if that's the case, then why does the New Testament contain so much instruction? I mean, if it's not about what we do, then why does Paul write so much about this is what you sh- should do? First of all, when I say it's not about what you do, I'm referring to everything I said earlier about that permanent and immediate change that takes place. Your holy, righteous, and new and forgiven identity, that is what is not about what you do. That is solely about what Jesus has done. But yes, there are things that we should do, but That is all about learning to live with the new that we have now in Jesus. And if you pay attention to Paul's letters, you'll see that he usually spends the first half of the letter talking about who Jesus is, what he has done, what that means for us, and who you are in him. And then the second, the the 
the rest of the letter, the instruction part is, this is what you do with that. Now that this new has come, now that this is who you are, this is how you adjust your life to who you are now in Christ. Where we get tripped up is when we view the instructions in the New Testament the same way that the instructions in the Old Testament were viewed under the Old Covenant. Under the Old Covenant, it was, if you do this, then God will do this. If you obey these commands, if you observe these rituals, if you follow these principles, then God will bless you, He will have favor on you, He will accept you. But under the New Covenant, God's favor and blessing and acceptance are solely found in Christ alone. It's not about getting more. It's about understanding what you have, what you have been given in Him. Everything that needed to be done in order to gain God's blessing and favor and acceptance was completely accomplished by Jesus And so if you are in him, then all of that is automatically credited to you. It's not about earning any more of it. It's about living in what you have, the fullness of what you have now in him. Folks, when I say that Jesus changed everything, I mean that he changed everything. Even the way that we view his instructions and commands in his word. I mean, it's no longer if you will, then God will. They are now, because Jesus has, you now can. Because of what Jesus has done and because of who he has made you, you can do this. You can live this way. But that ongoing change doesn't just mean the change in how we live or a change in our behavior. More than that, it's about an ongoing change of heart. Even though that permanent change has taken place, we still carry around the habits and the thought patterns of the old self. And every bit of those things are rooted in the heart. I mean, a lot of us, rather than the favored sons and daughters of the Father that we are, we still live as though we are orphans. Many of us still struggle with fear. Even though there is absolutely no reason to fear when you are in the hands of a sovereign and loving Father. And from that fear comes things like anger and worry and anxiety and selfishness and all other kinds of things that don't reflect who we are. I'm telling you, God loves us so much and He wants us to experience the fullness of joy that is found in the life that Jesus has provided for us. God wants us to enjoy Him the same way that Jesus enjoys the Father. God wants us to enjoy Jesus as much as the Father enjoys the Son. The Christian life is about enjoying Him. And so at times, God will reveal things in us that keep us from that joy that keep us from being able to enjoy him the way that he wants us to. And the primary way that he does that is by leading us into situations that cause those things in us to rise to the surface. You know, when you're cooking something in a pan or a skillet, 
And after you get it out of there and it's ready, you look at that pan and you'll see the food that's just all stuck to the sides and the bottom of it. Now to get rid of that, we don't usually just go right at it and start scrubbing it. What do we do? Soak it, yeah. We put it in an environment that's going to loosen that stuff up and cause some of it to actually rise to the surface. Usually that environment is soapy water. Well, that's the same thing, that same way that God does in us. He puts us in situations and environments that may cause the junk in our heart to rise to the surface so that then we can be aware of them, bring them to Him, and allow Him to remove it. I mean, it may be a struggle that you're having in some relationship. I mean, what is that struggle right now causing to rise up in you? Is it just grace and mercy and love that's just flowing out of you towards that person? Or is it the anger and resentment and bitterness? What is it that's being produced there? Maybe it's a loss of a job that's causing fear and anxiety to rise up. God's using that to reveal those things in you so that he can then remove them and teach you how to trust him and to know that he's a good father who will not allow his children to go hungry, that he's a father who will provide all your needs according to his riches and glory. You know, we can say that we believe that stuff all day long, but it's not until we're put into those situations where we get to actually experience it and live it out. And God shows us whether we really believe it or not, and he wants us to be able to really live it out and believe it. Here's something I really want you to hear. And that is that if you have a desire to experience the fullness of joy that is found in this new life of Christ, if you want those things in your heart to be removed that keep you from that life of joy, and your life matching who you are in Christ, then the worst place for you to be is alone with no meaningful connection to other believers. I mean, truthfully, if you really want to grow, it does you no good to come in here on Sunday mornings and just sing a few songs and listen to a sermon and have no deeper relationships with other believers outside of that. You're only going to be able to grow so far. Next point didn't get included in your bulletin, but if you're taking notes, write this important statement down. Community is the best environment that God uses to bring about ongoing heart change in us. It's in a community of other believers, relationships where you are known and you know others. Why is that? Because people can be difficult. Relationships can be difficult. And when you get broken people together in close proximity, there's going to be friction. And there's going to be some conflict there that's going to cause things in our heart to rise up. And that's how the Lord may highlight those things so that he can then remove them from us. It's also because God also created us, us with blind spots in our life. There's things that we can't see that others can. 
And the reason I believe He created us that way is because if we want to grow, if we want to learn to live with the new that we have in Jesus, then that forces us to pursue that kind of community and to pursue those kind of relationships where we can trust somebody by speaking into our lives about the things that they see in us that we can't. Okay, so once those things in us are revealed, how do we get rid of them? Next point. What is the key to living with the new? Repentance. Repentance is the key to living in the new and adjusting your life to reflect who you are. Well, what exactly is repentance? Because that's a word we hear all the time in church. But what is it from a gospel standpoint? Well, repentance is simply turning to Jesus. In turning to Jesus, you're automatically turning away from whatever is, is not of him. And I'll tell you this too, repentance isn't just about a change of behavior. It's also a change in thinking, a change in, in mind. And then the next point, repentance is required when we live according to who we were instead of according to who we are in Christ. It's acquired when what we say, think, and do doesn't line up with what God says, thinks, and does. Now, let me say this too. Repentance isn't always about the bad things that we do. It's not about repenting from the bad things all the time. A lot of times repentance is required when we do good things but with the wrong motive. I mean, if I'm doing a bunch of good deeds because I think that by doing those, God is going to bless me more, or I'm doing those in order to get God to like me more, then I need to repent. I need to repent of failing to trust in the full sufficiency of Christ. I need to repent of not believing that all of my blessings and favor are secured in Him. And there's nothing more I can do to add to what He has done. I need to repent of trying to do what Jesus has already done for me. One of the problems I think many Christians have is that our whole perception of God when it comes to repentance, what that means and when it comes to Him revealing things in us that He wants to change, I think we often have this twisted perception of Him that is usually based on the experiences that we have had with authority figures in our life, whether it be our parents or, or the way that we parent our own kids. When we were younger and doing something that we shouldn't, we may have had a parent or someone in our life, you stop doing that right now for I wear your butt out. And so if that's what we are been used to our whole lives, I mean, that's how we're going to assume that God deals with us the same way. And that he's looking down on us just like this and waiting for us to mess up. And every time he points something out, look at there. You see what you're doing right there? I swear, if you keep this up. And think that that's, that's our perception of God. I've talked to so many people who think that's how God sees them. But look at what Romans 2, 4 says. It says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It's his kindness, not his anger or his disappointment or his punishment. It's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. 
Now, God showed me what that looks like really from his perspective one day really strong. Several years ago when my kids were much younger, we were living in a different place than we do now where we were raising dairy goats who those goats hung out at the barn all day long. And I had to do something at the barn that day, so I had one of the kids with me that was, who was a toddler at that time. And I'm not going to say which kid it was because my kids are now at that age that if I say anything about them from up here, oh my gosh, it is too humiliating. So I'm not going to do that. But this particular one of my four that I had who was a toddler, I set them down on the ground. And uh, so I could do whatever it was I needed to do. And a few minutes later, I turned from my work to, to check on, on my kid. And it just so happened to be at just the right time. Because when I turned and looked, I see her or him. <laughs> With a handful of goat pellets headed right for an open mouth. I'm not talking about feed pellets. I'm talking about the kind of pellets that the feed turns into when it comes out the other end. She had a handful of these things. And it just had to go in the mouth like everything else that a toddler can grab. And I just quickly ran over there and said, No, no, baby girl. Or boy. <laughs> well, I got three of the girls, so you, you don't know which one it was. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just walked over there and I brushed those pellets, grabbed a hand and brushed the pellets out of there and I said, no, 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 that is not good for you. I wasn't mad, I wasn't disappointed or anything like that. I just knew that was not going to be good for her. That was not going to lead her into joy. It would lead her into pure sickness. Say, this is not who we are. <laughs> this is not what we eat in this house. And so turning her away from that, and of course, not getting her way, and not understanding, misinterpreting the father's love for her, just started crying and crying. And so I just picked her up and held her in my arms and loved on her until she stopped, until she forgot about it all. And as I was holding her, I mean, the Holy Spirit just spoke to me and said, that's how I see repentance from my perspective. Just simply a loving father seeing his children involved in things that he knows will not lead them into joy. Things that don't reflect who he has made them. And he said, here my son, my baby girl, turn from that. That's, that's not who you are. That's not good for you. Last point. Repentance is the love and mercy of God in action. I believe for too long, much of the church as a whole has wrongly associated repentance with guilt, and condemnation, and shame. And the truth is, when we see it happening in someone's life, when we see someone broken over their sin and confessing that and turning to Jesus, man, that is something that we as a church should be celebrating. Every time, just celebrating. And so this morning... My hope is that that's exactly how we would end our time together on this Palm Sunday. 
I know that there are some of you here who God's been dealing with you and about things that He wants to change in your life. Maybe it's the way that you've been living or simply something in your heart that He keeps highlighting there. Maybe there's a struggle that you're going through and you've been wondering why in the world you've been having to struggle through this situation. God may be showing you it simply to reveal things in your heart that He wants to remove so that you can enjoy Him more, so that you can experience the fullness of that joy that He has provided in Jesus. Just like I started this message with, when Jesus shows up, things change. And my prayer has been for our time this morning that just as he entered in Jerusalem and came right back out, man, there was just consequences and signs that he had been there. My prayer is that that's what it would be like this morning, that Jesus comes in. And after we leave here, man, there are signs in people that Jesus was there, signs that they had an encounter with him. So let's allow him to do in us what he wants to do this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are a good, good father. That you would even love us the way you do, God, is just so beyond me. That you just so freely give us what we don't deserve. You give us the things that we could never earn. God, it's just amazing. And it's in that that you bring us to a place of repentance. And so, Lord, I'm praying right now, by your Holy Spirit, you would just, just dump a load of kindness on someone in here that brings them to that place of repentance, that they're able to see themselves the way that you see them, so that whatever it is that they are involved in or holding on to, God, they would have no problem just sitting down and, and walking away from as they turn completely to you, because that's not who they are. That's not the way things are done in this house, in God's family. So Holy Spirit, I'm asking you to come and do what only you can do. We just submit ourselves to you. Say, have your way in us. God, I know that so many times when we hear a message, we're thinking in our minds, oh, I wish so-and-so could hear that. Lord, I pray that this time we'd be like, what are you saying to me, Lord? you saying to me so Jesus I'm asking you to enter this place not this building but enter into our hearts and make change happen in your name we pray amen